This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, reveals he wore a Nazi costume to his own 21st birthday party. Now he says he's deeply ashamed. Also, human rights at risk across Asia. A leading advocacy group pushes Australia to do better on treatment of refugees and First Nations people. China, you know, we've seen crimes against humanity being committed in Xinjiang, the dismantling of democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, The issues in Australia are different, but there's still a responsibility on the Australian government to address those abuses. And now it's Australia's emergency departments gripped by a workforce crisis. I'm hearing of emergency departments, particularly in rural areas, that are on the margin of having to close, where the director of the department is having to ring around every single day to find staff for the evening shift or for the night shift. This just isn't sustainable any longer. Thanks for your company. Just 10 weeks out from the New South Wales state election, Premier Dominic Perrottet has apologised for what he's calling a grave and terrible mistake, wearing a Nazi uniform to his own 21st birthday party. The emotional admission was prompted by a phone call from a colleague two days ago and rumours about a damaging photo being circulated behind the scenes. The Jewish community says the revelation is painful, but they're glad the Premier has owned his mistake. Rachel Hayter reports. It was an unexpected and unsolicited admission to reporters there for an election campaign news conference. When I was 21, at my 21st fancy dress party, uh, I wore a Nazi uniform. A remorseful New South Wales Premier, who's 40 years old now, says he received a call from a Cabinet colleague about the costume two days ago. I'm deeply ashamed of what I did, and I'm truly sorry for the hurt and the pain that this will cause people right across our state. Dr Brianne Fallon is Manager of Student Learning and Research at the Sydney Jewish Museum. He said that he was deeply ashamed of the pain that it will cause. And I think that the present tense there is extremely important because it was wrong then, it is wrong now, and it will always be wrong in the future. Dr Fallon says the uniform is a symbol and using a symbol gives it validity. It is a symbol of hatred, of bigotry, of discrimination, and to don it suggests that not only were the actions of the Nazis and their collaborators condoned, but that they are okay in the society that we are creating and want to create. But, she says, the fact the Premier has taken responsibility is a step in the right direction. Former New South Wales Jewish Board of Deputies CEO Vic Aladef echoed that sentiment, saying in a statement, it's important the Premier acknowledged his actions were wrong and apologised. He also pointed out Dominic Perrottet has been a staunch friend of the Jewish community throughout his political career. That career was starting when Mr Perrottet donned the uniform. He joined the Liberal Party in 2002, the year he turned 20, and was president of the Young Liberals two years later. At that age in my life, I just did not understand the gravity and the hurt of what that uniform 
means. Simon Longstaff is Executive Director of the Ethics Centre. We have to remember that this was done by a 21-year-old man and we might hope that people of that age are better informed and exercise better judgement. But the truth of the matter is that 21-year-olds, particularly blokes, do some really, really stupid things in the course of their life. But Mr Longstaff says that doesn't mean the Premier's costume choice for his milestone birthday was OK. It seeks to trivialise what was one of the greatest evils ever perpetrated in human history, namely to deny the full humanity of a whole group of people and then seek to exterminate them as less than fully human. And to take that to a party, show, I, think, I think there's a, it's a true disgrace that that should have been done. It's a disgrace the adult Premier clearly recognises. Last year, the Perrottet government made it a criminal offence to knowingly display a Nazi symbol in public without a reasonable excuse. The controversy brings another prominent case to mind. Prince Harry infamously wore a Nazi costume to a native and colonial-themed party when he was 20 years old. Prince Harry reflected on the scandal in December's Harry and Meghan documentary on Netflix. It was one of the biggest mistakes of my life. I felt so ashamed afterwards. All I wanted to do was make it right. I sat down and spoke to the chief rabbi in London, um, which had a profound impact on me. I went to Berlin and spoke to a Holocaust survivor. I could have just ignored it and got on and probably made the same mistakes over and over again in my life. But I learned from that. That's Prince Harry ending that report by Rachel Hayter. A new international report has raised concerns over the human rights of Indigenous people in Australia. The annual World Report from Human Rights Watch has shown some improvement on human rights since the Albanese government was elected, but warns urgent action is needed on First Nations issues. Political reporter Dana Morse has the story. Imagine being locked in a prison in 50-degree heat with no air conditioning and no way of cooling yourself down. That's the reality for detainees in Roeburn Prison in the Pilbara, where the population is mostly Aboriginal and the state government's plans on air conditioning are still years away. It's just one example of how the human rights of Indigenous people are under threat and now Australia has officially been put on notice by the international watchdog. It's a national emergency and we, we couldn't think of a more urgent priority for the Albanese government. That's Australian researcher for Human Rights Watch, Sophie McNeil. Whether it's prisoners in Roeburn in Western Australia who are sitting there in 50 degrees without any air conditioning or the treatment of children in the Bankshire Hill Detention Centre in Perth where they've been locked in their cells for up to 23 hours a day. Australia is obliged to treat prisoners humanely. High incarceration rates, poor prison conditions and deaths in custody have all been raised as concerns in the Human Rights Watch World Report. Sophie McNeil says domestic inaction on human rights is damaging Australia's reputation overseas. Because it undermines our credibility to lead on human rights and democracy in the region, which we know is a passion of the new Foreign Minister, Minister Penny Wong. The UN has also raised concerns about the treatment of Aboriginal children and adults in custody. Dr Hannah McLeod is an Indigenous law academic and member of the UN's Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. It was a subject of our last meeting in New York 
and I'm sure it will be again because the treatment of Aboriginal people in uh, prisons, in custody, the issue of deaths in custody is a serious issue in our country. It's a long-standing issue dating back at least over 30 years. Dr McLeod says Australia has had plenty of time to act. The UN Committee on Elimination of Race Discrimination has uh, made some very clear recommendations and advice. And I was at that meeting and it's been many years now and Australia is simply dragging its feet too long on this issue. In a statement, the federal government says it has a plan to reduce the over-representation of Indigenous people in custody and is working with the states and territories to raise the age of criminal responsibility. But the experts say it's not happening quickly enough. I think Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus would be well placed uh, to bring Aboriginal leaders and experts in criminal justice together to start working on these very serious issues as a matter of some urgency. Green Senator for Victoria and spokesperson for Indigenous Affairs Lydia Thorpe says international influence will be key to forcing the federal government to act. It's 2023 and we're talking about prisons that are killing people just due to basic human rights that they are being denied within a so-called justice system. So we need international scrutiny and international pressure to hold these governments to account and listen to First Nations people about what real justice actually looks like. That's Green's spokesperson for Indigenous Affairs, Lydia Thorpe, Dana Morse reporting. So how does the rest of the region fare in this report and how does Australia compare? I spoke to Elaine Pearson, the Asia Director for Human Rights Watch from Jakarta. The World Report of Human Rights Watch does not in any way try and rank countries, uh, but we think all countries where we work that are involved in human rights violations should be held to account for those violations. So, you know, Afghanistan, we've seen the total crushing of women's rights in every sphere, but particularly access to education, the right to work, and this is having knock-on effects for the humanitarian crisis. Uh, China, you know, we've seen crimes against humanity being committed in Xinjiang, the dismantling of democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, The issues in Australia are different, but there's still a responsibility on the Australian government to address those abuses. The issue of refugees arriving by boat, or more to the point, being turned around, continues to be a problem in the region. Thailand and Malaysia pushing boats back out to sea. What role has Australia played in policies like that being adopted around the world, and and what is that doing more broadly for the fate of people in danger around the world? Well, frankly, I think Australia sets a very negative role model for the region when Australia turns back boats um, and doesn't accept people who are, you know, fleeing um, their home countries and, and trying to simply claim asylum to which they're entitled to. So, you know, I think this is really damaging, actually, for the region. And we see this playing out right now with Rohingya boats uh, being turned back from Thailand and Malaysia. And, you know, frankly, we have Australia and Indonesia co-chairs of the Bali process, which is meant to be addressing smuggling and, and trafficking of people. Well, if it's about addressing those issues, then, you know, the Bali process really should be used to ensure there is a regional mechanism to provide humanitarian assistance uh, to people who are fleeing persecution. You mentioned the serious issues within China, the treatment of Uyghurs, President Xi getting a third term, hardcore lockdowns and the like. But China is also being more assertive and aggressive in its, you could say, coaxing and coercion around the world. How would you characterise 
that combination of, of policies? I think it's really dangerous to see the Chinese government using uh, economic and diplomatic coercion in order to evade accountability for very serious abuses. And, you know, frankly, we saw this play out uh, with the vote at the UN Human Rights Council, even just to have a discussion about the UN's report on those abuses in Xinjiang. Sadly, the Chinese government won that vote very narrowly. It was very close. But I think that is where we are seeing the Chinese government uh, be more aggressive in its foreign policy and, you know, really insisting that governments that where it has, you know, very significant economic interests, uh, really trying to push and persuade those governments to support the Chinese government. Um, and instead, the Chinese government should be you know, living up to its obligations under international law and, you know, addressing its violations instead of trying to, you know, distort and hide those violations. Where are the green shoots? Where are signs that progress on human rights is being made? Well, I think the green shoots are really seeing the extent to which in the face of, you know, huge repression, young people are still taking to the streets to stand up for their rights. And we saw that happen in China last year. We've seen women still taking to the streets in Afghanistan. I think the other positive thing was that we saw the UN Security Council finally issue its first ever resolution on Myanmar in December. Um, and that's no easy feat to get a resolution, you know, past the Security Council because of the ability of governments like China and, and Russia to veto. But, you know, that's just one resolution. What we need now is concerted action and pressure, particularly from countries in the region, um, to force the Myanmar junta. Um, to, to uh, you know, abide by its human rights obligations, um, release political prisoners um, and ensure a genuine return to, to democracy. Elaine Pearson, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, David. And Elaine Pearson is the Asia Director for Human Rights Watch. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, was it too good to be true? The company planning to run a power cable all the way from a Northern Territory solar farm to Singapore goes into administration. Australia and Papua New Guinea have taken another step toward a joint security pact with Prime Ministers from both countries vowing to finish negotiations by the end of April this year. Anthony Albanese and James Marape issued a joint commitment after holding talks in the PNG capital Port Moresby this afternoon. Our foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgitz joins us now. Stephen, what have the two leaders had to say about this pact? Well, both leaders have spoken about the pact as a natural evolution in the relationship. It is worth remembering, of course, David, that Australia and PNG already have pretty deep defence links. So you've already got, for example, a large number of Australian troops over in PNG to help with training. You've already got Australia and PNG working together on the naval base at Lombram. So the relationship's already pretty healthy in the defence space. But clearly, Australia and PNG, perhaps particularly Australia, want to formalise that agreement and also also put a framework down that will allow Australia to do more things in this space, whether that's expanding training, allowing more ship visits to PNG or uh, doing more things to help, for example, PNG stand up its own air force. Now, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, referred to Australia and PNG as countries with an indivisible future, saying that they shared security prospects and that one had to be secure for the other to also be safe. And he said that this agreement would really cement that relationship. We've agreed on a concrete timetable going forward that negotiations will be concluded by the end of April and we hope to have a signing uh, in June, a key outcome of the meeting today. 
As part of those discussions, we also directly discussed the way that we could provide more cooperation on law and order and policing issues. Anthony Albanese there in Port Moresby. Stephen, what is Mr Marape's view about this agreement? Well, Mr Marape said that uh, Australia and PNG had long had a good defence relationship. He is very focused on some of PNG's internal challenges, including, for example, the you know the, the terrible violence that roiled uh, parts of uh, PNG during elections last year that displaced thousands of people. So he seems keen to see if he can use the security treaty to get Australian assistance to perhaps bulk up or train police forces, for example, in the country to do more to establish order. He was asked, incidentally, whether the agreement would stop uh, stop PNG from signing similar agreements with other countries, particularly China. The backdrop here, David, of course, is the Solomon Islands China Security Pact that has caused so much uh, despair here in Canberra. Uh, and uh, he said that Mr Albanese didn't frame it in terms of third countries, that it was purely about the bilateral security relationship and that China along with all other countries, understood that PNG had a unique relationship with Australia. Let's listen to what he had to say. Our discussions were more centred around PNG-Australia relationships and uh, at no uh, instance was China or any other nations brought into the picture. Our relationship with Australia is peculiar, unique. Uh, every other nation understands this. Uh, we discuss with, uh, from the context of PNG-Australia uh, purely on that basis. That's Prime Minister James Marape there. Stephen, what are some of the other issues on the agenda? Uh, there's a lot, uh, but just to pick one or two quickly, uh, PNG remains frustrated with just how difficult it is for their citizens to come to Australia. There was a suggestion that Australia might open a, a visa processing centre in uh, Port Moresby uh, so people in PNG don't have to send their paperwork to Fiji, to the regional hub, uh, to uh, to get a visa. Uh, there was some confusion over that because the foreign minister in PNG said that announcement was coming and then uh, the ABC was later told that no such announcement would be made. So that remains a point of friction. The other thing, of course, or amongst many, is the question of NRL, which remains an obsession throughout Papua New Guinea. Both James Marape and Anthony Albanese have made it very clear they'd like PNG to field its own team in the NRL. That might not be a pipe dream, but it's probably still quite some time away from fruition. It'll be good to see. Thank you, Stephen. Foreign Affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts. Well, more than three years into the pandemic, the nation's emergency departments remain in the grip of a workforce crisis, and many in the medical sector fear it will soon worsen. The peak body for emergency doctors has found, on average, one in four specialist trainee roles are unfilled for the clinical year ahead, and in rural areas it's much worse, with some EDs on the margins of having to close. Both doctors and nurses say many of these work Force shortages were entirely predictable and warned of the potential for more avoidable deaths across the country. Gavin Coote reports. For the past three years, many of Australia's emergency departments have been at breaking point. And any notion that 2023 is going to be a little bit easier is something Dr Claire Skinner is quick to dismiss. She's the president of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. Conditions in emergency departments around Australia are incredibly difficult right now. Obviously, the pandemic's not over. We're still dealing with the impacts of COVID and other respiratory viruses. But we're seeing now staff who are committed to their jobs, but who have been working extra hours, cancelling leave now for three years. It's been really uncertain. They're tired and they're really starting to consider their options. It's meant more emergency doctors are reducing their hours, 
while others are retiring early or taking up non-clinical roles. A survey by the College for Emergency Medicine has now found, on average, more than a quarter of specialist trainee roles are unfilled for the clinical year ahead. And Dr Claire Skinner says it's much, much worse outside the big cities. I'm hearing of emergency departments, particularly in rural areas, that are on the margin of having to close, where the director of the department is having to ring around every single day to find staff for the evening shift or for the night shift. This just isn't sustainable any longer. We need to fix the system. The college warns some rural EDs have less than a fifth of specialist trainee roles filled and two-thirds of junior medical officer positions vacant. Dr Skinner points out the staff shortages are self-perpetuating as skilled staff quit because of unsustainable working conditions. Something that really worries me is we have focused on recruitment through the pandemic, but not enough on retention of our highly skilled staff who are already working in our emergency departments. I think we need to focus on creating good systems around them. Many nurses are also considering a change in career. Wayne Vandell is the president of the College of Emergency Nursing Australia. We are seeing nurses leave the specialty of emergency nursing. You know, the borders are open, they're they're going travelling. Most are are moving to different specialties where they can actually spend more time with patients under less pressured conditions. And, you know, some are making family life decisions, actually moving with their families to different areas. Dr Stephen Parnas is an emergency physician in Melbourne who thinks the workforce issues being felt now were entirely predictable. We have a good system by world standards, but just as the British experience where they all profess their love for the NHS, uh, but the NHS is in a disastrous state because of, uh, I think, a lack of attention, a lack of resourcing, Australia's health system faces similar challenges and unless we make some major changes in the very near future, uh, we will run the risk of more people walking away, more avoidable deaths, more harm, uh, which I think is unacceptable to every Australian. But he says it's a career that's worth sticking with. I'm now into my 31st year as a doctor and there are an enormous number of positives to caring for others and having an expertise that can allow you to provide that care and save a life. But we just have to give it the respect it deserves. Gavin Coote reporting there. Mosquitoes might just seem like annoying insects, and they are certainly that, but the health risks they pose are growing. Parts of New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia are being warned to be on alert after the rare Murray Valley encephalitis virus was detected in a mosquito. It's been more than 10 years since the last case of the potentially fatal disease was found in New South Wales. Alexandra Humphreys reports. The far west of New South Wales has been inundated with Darling River floodwaters. In the town of Menindee, pharmacist Mo Youssef has been racing to vaccinate locals against mosquito-borne Japanese encephalitis. When you see the sunset, you cannot see the sun from the mosquitoes. It's covered by mosquitoes. Yes, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very hard, a tricky situation for, for all of us, yes. Uh, and usually uh, I enjoy to go to outside, but now I, I'm too scared to go outside because the mosquitoes everywhere. Now he's been told there's another mosquito-borne disease to watch out for, Murray Valley encephalitis. But there's no vaccine and no treatment. I just try to increase the awareness as much as I can. I talk to the like key leading persons like uh, 
manager of the school, took to the supermarket, uh, just helping to increase the awareness of this is deadly disease. He says locals are doing a good job of protecting themselves from bites. But it's another problem health workers need to be looking out for. We have to keep our eye open uh, if there is any uh, maybe signs like um, convulsions, uh, unexplained convulsions or uh, unexplained fever. Dr Richard Broom is the Executive Director of Health Protection in New South Wales. He says there haven't been cases of Murray Valley encephalitis since 2011. The most serious outbreak before that was in 1974. It's now been detected in a mosquito in Menindee. That's the sort of area that we might expect it to be. And I think the main thing is it's in, the risk at the moment for these sorts of viruses is much higher because it's so wet. We're seeing a lot of mosquitoes. Victoria has also issued an alert this week after separate detections in the north of the state. For most people, though, actually, you might not get any symptoms at all. But for about 1%, that you will develop moderate symptoms, things like fever, um, headache, rash, um, sore joints, and then, but rarely they can cause very serious illness, so encephalitis, which means inflammation of the brain, and then if that happens, you get confusion, seizures, uh, drowsiness, loss of consciousness, so very serious, and that's potentially fatal. Dr Broom says people should avoid being out between dusk and dawn, wear light-coloured, loose-fitting, long-sleeve clothing, use mosquito repellent, install mosquito screens, and tip out any stagnant water around the home. The key message, though, is there's a range... The risk for mosquito-borne illnesses is higher, um, right, probably right across New South Wales than it has been um, in recent times. Dr Tanya Russell is a Senior Research Fellow at James Cook University's Institute of Tropical Health and Medicine. The Murray Valley encephalitis is actually quite a rare virus that, that is endemic in Australia and it really, there are cases that come up and, and really this is often associated with big inland flooding events, so something like what we are seeing at the moment. New South Wales Health is also warning of an increased risk of other mosquito-borne diseases, including Japanese encephalitis, Ross River fever and Barmer forest virus. That's Alexandra Humphreys reporting. Australia's ambition to become a global renewable energy superpower have hit a roadblock. Sun Cable, the private company behind a world-first plan to export solar energy from the Northern Territory to Singapore, has been put into voluntary administration. It's understood a dispute between billionaire backers Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks triggered the move. And as John Daly reports, the future of the multi-billion dollar project is now in doubt. In a glossy promotional video, Sun Cable pitches its $30 billion project as key to harnessing Australia's untapped solar potential. The private company has a proposal to build a mega solar farm in the Northern Territory, big enough to be seen from space. This is the largest solar farm under development in the world. Uh, It's also the largest battery anywhere in the world. It's about 300 times larger than the largest battery at the moment. That's Sun Cable CEO David Griffin previously explaining the energy would be exported to Singapore via 4,200 kilometres of undersea cables. The visionary plan is now at risk at collapsing under the weight of its own lofty ambitions. Sun Cable has been placed into voluntary administration with FTI Consulting appointed as administrators. In a statement, Sun Cable cited a misalignment between shareholders. 
The appointment followed the absence of alignment with the objectives of all shareholders. Whilst funding proposals were provided, consensus on the future direction and funding structure of the company could not be achieved. The ABC understands that disagreement is between prominent billionaire investors Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks about the funding and direction of the company. Tim Buckley is Director of Public Interest Think Tank, Climate Energy Finance. At the end of the day, it's always very problematic when you're trying to manage two billionaires. They both need to collaborate with the existing founders of Sun Cable and for whatever reason, They've hidden impasse on something. I don't know the details. Do you think Sun Cable is, is sunk, dead in the water now? No, and I think it's really important to understand they've moved into administration, not liquidation. They are hugely different. Uh, normally one can be a precursor to the other. Mike Cannon-Brooks says he still fully backs the project and looks forward to supporting the company's next chapter. John Hartman, chair of Andrew Forrest's Squadron Energy, said the company believes in the vision but believes the manner in which the project is delivered needs urgent change. Energy and Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen has played down Sun Cable's administration. It doesn't represent on either of the uh, big investors' behalf or anybody else's behalf any sort of lack of faith in the future of Sun Cable. It's a commercial change of structure. Sun Cable said the difficult decision to enter into administration was based on the need to find additional capital. That would likely involve seeking expressions of interest for either a recapitalisation or sale of the business. Aside from the funding issues, Tim Buckley says the project also raises geopolitical challenges, as the path of the undersea cable would cut through Indonesian waters. Which means it becomes an Indonesian cooperation as a prerequisite to getting the ability to get to financial close, let alone build it. And so there's three different countries involved. And yet, as I said, it's a private company. It's a startup company. So the geopolitical constraints are pretty extreme. The technological constraints are pretty um, extreme. And this is five times longer than the largest operating subsea cable in the world. So it is a world first. Sun Cable had hoped a final investment decision on the project would be made by the start of 2024. John Daly reporting, and that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.